My mom told me a few years ago that she knew early on in my life that I was going to be a pastor. But I, now, now this is going to be surprising to some, but I never once before August 1992 even ever thought of being a pastor. So I had put my faith in Jesus Christ as a very young boy, and a love for God's word consumed me relentlessly for years until midway through my senior year of high school, I fell away from God and embraced the world. And when I did that, I was stripped of happiness and purpose. The world left me hollowed out and broken. And throughout that dark journey, I could hear the patient and unmistakable steps of God in pursuit of me. He, it was, he was never hateful, never frustrated with me, just a constant whisper calling me back to him, but I would not return. Not until he removed what I valued most at that time in my life. It wasn't until he removed that that I finally gave up. And when I did, I handed him back the control of my, my, my life, and I realized that he never really truly had lost that control in my life. And he began to rebuild me, and utterly surprising to me, he called me into his great mission as a pastor. I wanted to be a counselor. I literally never thought I'd be a pastor, and not even once that I even entertained the thought of it. In fact, I'll even tell you the truth. I thought anybody could be a pastor. That would be a major step back in my career. So I've always been able to, to really identify with Jonah because kind of I, I'm a lot like him. Yet my life, and more importantly, Jonah's life, shows us the relentless grace of God. He never gives up on us. He has an unending love for us, and not only for us, but for all people. Now listen, God's love is constant, and I want you to remember these three angles of it. It will never increase, it will never decrease, and it will never end. That's the constancy of God's love and his relentless grace. So as we turn to the book of Jonah, we begin our journey through this book. We're going to start with verse 1, and the way that verse 1 begins is extremely important. And if you have it open, here's what the English Standard Version says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now in the ESV, which I just read, it begins with the word now. But if you have the NIV or the NASB, it starts with the word the. If you have the King James, it's now. But if you go to the original text, now listen, these are all translated from the original text. The Old Testament written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. So they're translated for us in the original Hebrew text the very first word of verse 1 is not now, it's not the, it's the word and. That's a conjunction, if you care to know. And a conjunction is a bridge word, it connects two thoughts. So if you open up a novel, and I handed you a novel, and the very first 
sentence of the novel began with the word and, there's probably very likely a chance that you're going to wonder, did I miss something? Did I miss the first part of the novel? Because I'm like already into the story with the word and. What happened before? You see, the word and places our very first step into the stream of God's grace that's been flowing through the entire Bible. Now watch this. The fountainhead of that grace stream, the fountainhead where it began was in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, and it began to pour out over all humanity as God began this rescue mission for lost sinners. And it's about to flow straight into a massive city of people called Nineveh, where people desperately needed to be saved from the wrath of God. And Jonah, Jonah is the one that God will choose to speak good news to this doomed people. So let's pause for just a moment in order to begin locating ourselves in the story, because really this is going to be, I think this is going to be a very interesting sermon study. But it could be interesting by way of, wow, that's new information. I never knew that before. This is kind of interesting. I mean, how many of you knew that the very first word is really and, and that it's a story that's already been in process. So this is already something that maybe some of you have learned, and that could be a way that you walk out of here, go, you know, I'm gonna think I'm gonna like this sermon series. I'm gonna learn things. But listen, it's not about learning things, it's about knowing God through his word so that we can be transformed. That's the ultimate aim of preaching. If you're just wanting to learn things from this from the preacher. You're not coming to church for the right reason. You're not reading those devotionals for the right reason. You're not even coming to the Word of God for the right reason. It's not about learning. It's about transforming. So every person in this sanctuary, myself included, identifies either with Jonah or a resident of Nineveh. Now listen, how's that for simplifying Jonah? You're either like Jonah or you're like somebody that lives in Nineveh. There's only two options. You're either a servant of God whom he has given a mission to, that's Jonah, or you're a sinner in desperate need of rescue, that's Ninevites. And if you're among the latter, the ones in need of rescue, then here's what's happened. Like me, you were born into sin, and no one, listen, no one ever had to teach you to defy God. You didn't have to sit down when you could learn to read and read a manual on how to sin successfully. You knew how to do it from the very get-go. I did too. Nobody had to instruct you or even model for you how to lie or to selfishly hoard your toys or your dolls or to argue with your parents. It's all come naturally for each of us. And as we age, we become more sophisticated at sinning. And all the while, there's this breach. There's this separation between the sinner, that's all of us, and God. And the sinner, none of us, can repair it. So the end of a sinner's life 
if he or she is not rescued, listen, here's the bad news, is eternal hell. Where Jesus himself said, their worm shall never die, where they suffer in torment with gnashing of teeth. So it kind of begs us to ask the question, what is so terrible about sin that God would give someone that sentence? Isn't sin just some stupid rule that somebody made up that stands in the way of happiness, of self-fulfillment, of self-realization? I mean, listen, in our language, if something is better than good, don't we say, wow, that was sinfully good? So this sin message to the unbeliever is the oppression, it's the oppression of religion meant to control the masses. And I've heard that, you probably heard that, you may have said that. Preachers talk about sin, religion trumpets sin because that's how they control the masses. And the problem with this thinking is that it starts off with a wrong step and it never corrects course. It begins with thinking that men and women are the measure of all things, that we create the rules. That we define morality. That we're the ones, through enlightened self-interest, know what is true, so we just follow our hearts. Isn't that Disney's theme? Now, I'm about to do something that you're not going to care about, but the people watching this tomorrow morning will. Never once yet have I had my tablet stop working and I have to go get my notes. I'm about to do that. It's going to be a magic trick for you on Sunday morning, so just hang in there. Kind of fun, wasn't it? Modern technology. Let me give you the better way to approach this idea. What is so bad about sin that God would send somebody to hell? It's a radically different way. It starts with the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. Now, God created. Who created? God did. God created the heavens and the earth. He defines the universe. Now listen, this is, ma this is massive. This is radical. God defines the universe, not us. We come into a universe already created, already defined with intact morality, and God is its source, its owner, its definer. So every sin we are capable of is high treason against he who created it all, he who defined everything. So sin for Tim Ackley is my will at odds with God's will. I'm at war with him. And the desire that there be no higher authority than myself reigns supreme in me. In other words, sin is the quest to be God, to define my reality. But listen, we're not God. God is God. He is the I am. We are the I am because. You see the difference? So it's into this war, into this conflict that God steps. Not to destroy, not to annihilate, but to rescue. You remember his stream of relentless grace. Now I'm going to 
bring you back to Jonah 1 in a moment. Remember the first word really is and, the word and, and you're stepping into a story that's already in existence. Well, here's the story. God disempowers the fight in us. Sin is high treason. Sin is war with God. It's my will at odds with God's will. I'm going to win. And God disempowers the fight in us with his grace. And he begins to show us the end of the road if we're going to continue to wage war against him. Do you remember my story at the beginning that God brought me to the point of emptiness and the loss of control, showed me the miserable course that I had set my life on. Our treason, our sin, deserves our death. And even God, listen, God cannot wink his eye and give you a pass at sin. He has no good old boy passes with sin. There's no mulligans. If you want to earn your salvation, then you've got to have a total sinless womb-to-tomb life. But we're not capable of this, for sin is a contagion. It affects every effort so that even the best of what we do, even the good things that we do, fall short of God's perfection and purity. It's like this. It's like having mud-covered hands trying to wipe a dirty window clean. It just won't work. Somebody with clean hands is the only one who can make our souls clean that leaves one being capable of this saving act. It's God himself, who's never sinned. He's always been pure. But our sin-ripped breach between us and God that sin has created, that breach can only be repaired by somebody dying in our place. Why? Well, Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is a financial term. Forgiveness is a financial term. Something has to buy us out of the debt of sin. And let's say that Tim Ackley, or you, you were put on that cross, and you shed your blood to the point of death, and your blood poured down that cross for everybody in this world, and listen, it would have accomplished nothing but your own miserable end, because your blood is tainted, so is it mine. It had to be the blood of someone who lived that total womb-to-tomb perfection, his death could pay then for the debt that our sin had created. Well, Leviticus 17, 14 says this, For the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. So perfect life for black is death. It's the great exchange of the cross when the Son of God died for sinners. Now we're getting back to and of Jonah 1, 1 in a minute. But let me say this. When a sinner, which we all are, when a sinner acknowledges that his or her sin is real and believes in Christ, accepting his words as true, God takes those sins and he transfers them, now watch this, into the account of Jesus and he became the guilty sin bearer for us. And remember, forgiveness is a financial concept 
So when God forgives us, the way he does is he takes all of our sins, past, present, and future, of the one who believes in him, and he pours them into the bank account of the soul of Jesus when he was on that cross. Now listen, that alone can't save you. If you're going to see God for eternity, you've got to become like him. You've got to become righteous. Having your souls taken off of your ledger and put onto Christ won't save you. Something has to exchange. And so what God does in that moment of belief is take the the righteousness of Christ and puts it onto the ledger of your soul. In other words, your sin goes to Christ's soul, his righteousness goes to yours, and you and I are made right, we are made righteous, we are justified, and God now looks at you, child of God, and he sees somebody like Jesus. See, God took the total womb-to-tomb perfection of Jesus, his righteousness, and he transferred it into the account of a forgiven sinner. He wiped away the muddied window of your soul. He rescued you, and he brought you, adopted you into his family. The debt of sin is paid in full. The sinner's forgiven. He's right before God. Now listen. And now he's put on mission To serve this great and glorious God. Now what did all of this have to do with the word and that you don't even see in your text, but which actually starts out the book of Jonah? See, and tells us that this rescue plan that I just shared with you, it's already in motion, and it's about to stream towards a wicked nation of people in a city called Nineveh. You see, Jonah is a story of our relentlessly gracious God who's on a mission to rescue desperate people. And every one of us here right now are either going to identify with Jonah or we're going to identify with the people of Nineveh. Here we go, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Now let's stop for a second. Jonah means dove. And if you know your Old Testament and your New Testament, that you know that the word that the, the dove was a symbol of two things: peace and mourning, like grieving. So Jonah, by profession and by name, he should be a messenger of peace, one who bravely and lovingly speaks the truth of God's word to those in need of rescue. Now listen, if you saw somebody dying. And you could do something about it, and you did not. You would hardly be a messenger of peace or someone who mourns over them. So we've got Jonah, whose name means peace and mourning, and he is the son of, it's actually Amittai, a father whose name means truth. So now we've got Jonah, the prophet of God. He speaks truth that God gives him to those in need. Now, this is a really amazing thing about an Old Testament prophet, a real one, because there were a lot of false prophets. 
By the way, did you know that there were schools of prophets? Were you actually enrolled? You actually went to to learn how to do prophecy. You learn how to minister to the people of God. So there's a lot of prophets. Jonah is just one of them. But God says in Amos 3, 7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So you can see how powerful, how authoritative, how influential a prophet could be in the Old Testament. And you can see how terribly a false prophet could lead people astray. Listen, their message had to be 100% accurate or they would be stoned. Now listen to what I'm about to tell you because I think it factors into why Jonah responds the way he does to God. Now listen. Jonah was a rock star among prophets at that time. See, early on in his ministry, God chose to give him a scoop that's going to skyrocket his career. It's the northern kingdom called Israel. And they're losing their land, they're losing steadily their territory to their enemies. By the way, the main two enemies taking their land are Syria and Assyria, of which the Ninevites will soon be the capital. So you've got these two enemies taking their land, but Jonah prophesies, he foretells that God's going to restore all of the boundaries to Israel. And it happens. You get to read about it in 2 Kings. Jeroboam, the king at the time, restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amatai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Now, did you catch, look at that screen for a second. Did you catch the very precise wording there? The prophet, not a prophet. That land restoration, that prophecy coming true and being fulfilled propels Jonah to fame and comfort and respect and glory. And listen, there's this whispery little seduction that comes into our comfortable hearts that really begins to believe that you can choose what assignments you accept from God or not. You know, when I first decided to ride a bicycle in this past August Restoring Hope tour, I knew I had to kick it in gear and get on the bike and ride. And among the things that I've learned about distance pedaling is that your legs can get lulled into a false ease. See, when you're pedaling a relatively flat road, it feels effortless, it feels rhythmic. But then all of a sudden you hit a hill and you experience immediately the sharp protest of the burn and you wonder how you're going to make it up that hill and you kind of think maybe i'm going to turn around it's similar when you are in a hundred degree temperature and you're sitting inside an air-conditioned home and you have to go out to work it's a jarring contrast but prosperity and ease are often enemies of faithfulness, both for Israel and for us today. In fact, Colin Smith, he's a pastor in the Evangelical Free Church up in Chicago, he wrote this, nothing is more disturbing to a comfortable faith or a comfortable church than God's passion for the world. Now let me give you a warning. 
The more you think on that statement, the more amazing that is. And you could walk out of here having written that down in your notes going, wow, I really learned a really neat statement. Listen, that's your trap. Don't do it. The end of preaching is transformation, not a new statement. So let that statement begin to jar you and begin to approach your soul and say, listen, is that me? Am I a comfortable Christian? And is God's passion for this world going to strike me significantly? See, verse 1 had to be electric to Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Listen, here's what Jonah, I think, is thinking. Yes, God, tell me what you want me to say and do, Lord. The last time made my career. I could hear God thinking, good, Jonah, because I want you to, verse 2, arise Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And I can picture Jonah going, what? Go to Nineveh? Get the heck out, God. There's no way I'm going to Nineveh. And that face of eager joy and getting a word from the Lord, turning almost immediately to one of fear and to disappointment, and then finally refusal. Now, I want you to think about this personally for a moment. Here's how you get yourself into the story in verse 1. Look at this verse again, verse 1, and reword it for a moment. Now, the word of the Lord came to, and I want you to put your name in it. Saying, get up, go, and do. What is it that God would tell you to do that you would want to do a Jonah? Because every Christian, myself included, we're all going to receive assignments from God as he engages us into his plan of rescue. That's the stream, that's the mission, and often they're going to be difficult assignments that you cannot fathom having the ability to complete, and often ones that will go contrary to really what you want to do in life. And it might be to give up that lucrative career to take a job that feels like a step backwards. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul as he was well on his way up the career ladder of a Pharisee. God calls him off the ladder to become the least of the apostles. Maybe God gives you an assignment that no one understands, like telling Noah to build an ark for a great flood when no one has even ever seen rain fall from the sky. He might move you to speak truth to somebody who has the power to bring you harm, like Elijah, when he was sent to confront the king of Israel. He might tell you to go after that person who hurt you yet again and forgive like he did Hosea with his wife who was unfaithful. Or he might ask you to rebuild a relationship that is in ruins like Nehemiah had to do with Jerusalem. Listen, this is the starting place for our sermon series. God chooses our assignments. We don't. And they're not always going to be easy. They will not always be glamorous. And they're not always going to make sense to us. Yet when God speaks to us, which he will to every believer, it will always be to show you your part in his plan of rescue and redemption. And listen, he never asks. He never will ask you to do something. He's always going to command you. You realize there's never been a time 
ever in the Bible where God asked his saints to do a task. Why would he ask? It is the word of the Lord. Look at all caps. That means Yahweh in verse 1. It's a name for God that reveals his eternally self-existent right to rule over everything that is. He created it. And we're again back to the, the already flowing stream in the word and. Jonah steps into this stream in 8th century B.C. We step into it in the 21st century. Because God wants to save and rescue people around the world. And we, like Jonah, like Israel, are sent on this mission with the message of the one who died in order to save. But we're also like Jonah. We got lazy. We get comfortable. We believe the lie that you can choose your own assignments. And one of the most important things I can tell you today is that as we begin this journey through Jonah is this. The call to Jonah had two purposes. It was meant to bring salvation to Nineveh, but it was also meant to shame Israel who forfeited the rescue mission that God had given to her. She was supposed to be the one, the nation, through whom God would bring the light of his glory to the whole world. And Israel forfeited it. It's the exact two purposes for us today in the church. He wants us to bring, he wants to bring through us salvation to those who are dying. Now listen, let's get really sober-minded for a second. Every single one of us has unbelievers around us. There are no exceptions to this. The end of an unbeliever's life is eternal destruction in hell. And if you're not motivated to rescue them, you either don't believe that or you don't love them. There's not, I don't think, a third option. And God wants to rescue them. God loves them. God has relentless grace for them. You are his missionary. You are the one to whom he is sending them or whom he is sending them to save them, to rescue them. The word of the Lord is coming to you and it's coming to me today. And he is calling us to join his mission, to get up, to go, to witness to those in need of rescuing. And listen, you can do this at your jobs. You can do this in your schools, your dorms, your neighborhoods. You can do this with the groups in which you do things in life with. But God will call us out of our lives of comfort and ease. And if we respond like Jonah and we run away, he's going to pursue us with his relentless grace he will bring us back, even if it takes years. I have a friend who had a promising sport career, sports career. He was good. Until he blew out his knee. And the Lord used that. It took him about a, about a year and a half to work through massive, severe depression. But all of a sudden, the God, God came and he realigned his life. He brought him onto mission. He gave him a purpose that has to do with redemption. And this guy is living for the Lord today. And it's not in sports. 
And sometimes God allows disease that puts us flat on our backs or unforeseen complications with a baby or sometimes a sudden end to a dating relationship, sometimes a financial setback. All of these are the ways that God gets us on to mission. They are his interruptions. And they always seem frightening and unfair at first, but they end up being exactly what he needed to use to give us a life of purpose and joy. See, when God calls you to something new, he always, he is always up to something good. See, it was the summer of 1985, August, and actually it was not August, it was late June, I had really, really walked far away from the Lord. Living and experiencing all of what the world had to give me. You'd think I was happy, right? In a 45-minute conversation, still is hard to believe even today, looking back, In 45 minutes, God took every single one of the friends that I held dear in my life, took them out of my life. It was amazing how that worked. I literally had no more friends back home in Dorado, New York. They would not talk to me over a silly little argument that lasted over a year. See, my plan was to go to a school closer to home where I could come home and party with them on the weekends. And God's relentless grace said, no, I'm going to interrupt your life. I'm going to take those friends away. Why would I want to be home? So I went back to school in Lynchburg, Virginia. But I went back this time praying, God, I was miserable last year. And I know I am far from you. I know you have made that so clear to me. I don't know how to get back you got to do something. The very first person I met in my sophomore year at Liberty University ended up becoming my best friend and speaking into my life in such a way that it brought me right back to the Lord. It even propelled me to do Bible studies, to teach them and to lead them and study God's word. See, my plan was interrupted by God's plan. And six years later, from that August of when I went back, God gave me a new assignment to enter ministry, which at the time seemed a really big career step backwards. But ended up being the path to mission that God had for me. Is there really anything more amazing than God's relentless grace? So let me close with... A couple questions. Are you on mission? Christian, I'm speaking to you for a moment. You who have put your faith in Jesus Christ and had all of your sins poured into his ledger and his righteousness poured onto yours and you were adopted into the family of God and you were given a life of eternal joy. Listen, are you on mission? Because the very moment you were saved, God said, Here we go. I've got a life of purpose for you, and it's all going to be about this dream of saving people because God loves to save. 
Are you on mission? Christian, let me tell you something. If you're not, God will interrupt your life. It will always seem unfair. It will always hurt. But the life that you were leading was taking you away from the mission. And like Jonah, he knows how to bring you back. And he will. And when he does, it's time to serve and to give him the very rest of your life. Amen? Let me talk to you who are not believers, and that's fine if you're here. And you know right now you're saying, I've never done that. I've never put my faith in God. I've always wondered what, what's the big deal about sin. I don't really get it. Just a religious manipulation. Maybe, maybe, maybe now you understand why sin is such a big deal. created a breach between you and God that God will not settle for because he loves you. He wants to have a relationship but sin won't allow it. And since we couldn't fix it because we've got muddy hands trying to wipe a dirty window clean, it'll never work. It'll just smear. We couldn't fix it. Somebody with pure hands, the Son of God, had to do it. And he did it. He climbed on that cross of Calvary after living 30 years of total, sinless, womb-to-tomb perfection. The only righteous person to ever live. His blood had the power to do what your blood and my blood never could. That is to pay for sins. Not only pay for them, to buy you out of them and to put you into his blessings. And all you need to do is recognize, I have sinned. I have defied God. Nobody taught me. I did it on my own. But I believe, I believe that he can save me. And he can take those sins away. And he can give me life forever. God, save me. And forgive me. And give me life. It is that simple. And get ready to get put on mission to serve your great and glorious God. Amen.